Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. That middle-aged man is me, Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode I'll be playing through Beneath Nightmare Castle, released in 1987 by Puffin Books. This is book number 25 in the Fighting Fantasy series, which means I've officially been doing this podcast for over two years. When I started this podcast, I had no idea how much pleasure it would give me, and I hope I've been able to communicate at least a little bit of that pleasure to you, the listener. This episode, I have the distinct joy of thanking a new patron. This is someone who's gone to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledged as little as a single English pound or local equivalent. Stuart, thank you so much for your support, especially as I know you're extremely knowledgeable about game books. Don't forget, anyone who pledges gets two game books, one written by me, one written by my partner, as well as two complete role-playing games. And there should be more goodies coming soon as well, including a new game book I'm currently deep into the weeds on. Beneath Nightmare Castle is a complete mystery to me. For whatever reason, I didn't get round to playing it as a child, despite the very striking cover art and the intriguing title. I know basically nothing about it beyond what I've read on the back, which suggests that we're in classic dungeon territory. I'm excited to be going in completely blind. That's something that will become increasingly common as we move past most of the best-known books in the series and into more unfamiliar territory. It's great that with these later books I get to combine nostalgia and my pronounced antiquarian leanings, but at the same time discover new stuff, which is, I grudgingly admit, also nice. Beneath Nightmare Castle was written by Peter Darville Evans, a writer with a colourful career in publishing, which also includes writing for my beloved Doctor Who, including co-writing the surprisingly good Doctor Who role-playing game Time Lord, which only deals with the classic series, having been released in 1991, but really goes above and beyond to create a simple, easy-to-grasp system that lets you simulate the adventures of those first seven Doctors and their companions. He would go on to write two further fighting fantasy books, so I hope he turns out okay, because we'll be tangling with him again before too long. The book has a really exciting cover by Terry Oakes of a woman who looks both glamorous and terrifying, lunging at the viewer with long claws by the light of a full moon. There's a strong horror vibe. Internal art was by Dave Carson. Let's get into it. By this point, I feel like very few fighting fantasy authors are capable of restraining themselves when it comes to the system, and Peter Darville Evans is no exception. So, as well as skill, stamina, and luck, we also have a new stat called willpower, and willpower works as a kind of sanity mechanic, which automatically intrigues me. So, you roll 1d6 and add 6 for it, the same as with skill and luck, and like luck, whenever you test it, you must reduce your score by 1, but there's the additional rule that if your willpower drops below six points and you then test your willpower unsuccessfully, you lose your grip on sanity and your adventure is immediately over. So that's a nice little additional thing we have to keep track of. 
I would argue that if you're going to do willpower, you probably don't need luck as well, particularly given that they work almost identically. But I guess skill, stamina and luck are core parts of the system, so they have to appear. Still, it provides us with an interesting additional thing to worry about and feeds into that horror vibe that I apparently correctly divined from the spiky lady on the cover. We start with very little equipment. We just have armour and our sword and our backpack. We have no food. We have very little money. So I think that's a better place to start in some ways than with 10 provisions in your backpack. I note there is a space for provisions on the adventure sheet, so I'm hopeful we will find some additional tuck for me to uh, enjoy as we progress. I have created my character. I've named them Bathos Glutamine, because I think that sounds like a very heroic name. They have a skill of 10, a stamina of 22, a luck of 10, and a willpower of 12, and I did not roll those entirely honestly. I will say that it took me forever to roll a skill and luck that came up better than average. I hope that doesn't indicate the kind of dice rolling I'll be doing throughout the adventure. Uh, the Willpower of 12 was my very first roll, so that's exciting. So, unlike in real life, I've got a very firm grasp on sanity. With all the preliminaries I think addressed, let's go to the background section. Captured. Netted. Strung up. Helpless. You curse yourself for an inattentive fool. So much for the peace and quiet of civilization. It was daydreaming about the comforts of home that got you into this mess. But even the hardiest adventurer can tire of life in the wilderness and begin to yearn for a soft bed. And it was difficult to think of anything else as you trudged to the summit of the last of the foothills and glimpsed the town of Neuburg basking in the afternoon sun. You know Neuburg. You have been here once before. It is not a large settlement, but you remember it as peaceful and prosperous. The black battlements of the keep of Neuburg seem to loom threateningly over the little town. But Baron Tholder, a man with a very stupid name, the Margrave of Neuburg Keep, I mean, to be fair, I'm hardly one to throw stones, but my stupid names are deliberate stupid names. What's Tholder's excuse? Baron Tholder is more than a friend. In fact, he is a comrade in arms. The two of you fought side by side at the Battle of Helm Hill, a renowned victory which has so far prevented any further incursions by the southerners of the steppes. You had been looking forward to seeing the old warrior again, and instead you have let yourself be caught by a band of those very same southern barbarians. Nearing the end of a hard trek down from the mountains with the rooftops of Neuburg in sight and your head filled with thoughts of a hearty meal, you failed to notice the warning signs. The bushes at the side of the trail rustled, and not quite at the same time as the wind gusted across the hills. Birdsong broke out as you approached a solitary tree, and you should have noticed that it was not entirely like any bird song you have heard before. So in real life, I can just about identify a blackbird and a gull and a robin. I think that's pretty much my limit. Ducks, I can do ducks. I love birds. I am terrible at identifying their song. Like these barbarians could have been whistling the birdie song 
and my brain would parse it as perfectly reasonable birdsong. At any other time, he would have stopped and looked around before stepping under that overhanging branch. It was such an obvious place for a trap. And then the ground gave way beneath your feet. Voices shouted in an unfamiliar tongue. You struggled, but could hardly move. And here you are. It's dark. You're in a pit. The ropes about you are pulled tighter. You move upwards, out into the light. You are in a net hanging from a branch, and you are surrounded by silent swordsmen swathed in flowing robes. As you spin slowly, their glittering eyes and gleaming blades seem to circle you. You glimpse the lowering shape of Neuberg Keep, and then something very heavy hits the back of your head. Pain. Flashing lights. You lose all consciousness. I really like this kind of intro in general because I think you've always got an issue with fantasy worlds and adventuring in fantasy worlds that your character knows much more about them than you do. And so the best thing you can do when you're writing an intro is to try and take the character out of their comfort zone as quickly as possible so that they are in the same boat as the reader. It's not always the right call. Obviously, there's lots of great books that don't do that. But this one is doing a nice job of saying, ah, yes, this is a character who's at home in this fantasy world. He's expecting to go somewhere familiar and suddenly everything's changed and they are as confused as the reader. And I think that's a good approach. You wake. A particularly insistent dwarf blacksmith seems to be using your head as an anvil. Your hands and feet are tightly bound and a blindfold covers your eyes. See, I usually want dinner and a movie before this kind of thing. You cannot move, you cannot see, and you can hear only distant, indistinct sounds. Time passes. The pain in your head subsides to a dull throb. Nothing else happens. Then you hear a voice, an urgent whisper. My friend, hush, say nothing. I, I have a... A sharp knife, but I dare not stay long. I cannot enter through this small space. You must pull yourself a little to the right and I'll sever your bonds. Hurry. Do you trust this unknown voice and shuffle nearer in the hope that your ropes will be cut? Or do you want to reject this offer of help? The devil in me wants to reject the offer of help. I do love the opportunity, as regular listeners will know, to refuse the call to adventure. The first time I play any computer role-playing game, I will do my absolute damnedest not to have any adventures. I don't do it when I'm playing tabletop games with people. I hasten to add. That's just rude. But uh, yeah, I'm going to reject this offer of help. If I immediately die, this doesn't count as one of the sausagey finger bookmark deaths. The mysterious voice implores you to move so that your bonds can be cut, but you remain motionless. Eventually you hear... I must go now. It is near dark and I fear for my life. They will return soon and take you. May Oiden be with you, stranger. A little later, you hear footsteps approaching. Rough hands pick you up, carry you up some stairs and throw you into what seems to be a cart. Almost as an afterthought, your captors club you into unconsciousness. You wake up in a cavernous vaulted dungeon. You are spread eagled on a cold stone slab. There are manacles around your limbs and tight straps across your body. 
All you can do is watch the wildly dancing shadows cast by the light of flaring cressets. I don't know what a cresset is. Okay, um, a cresset is a venue in Peterborough, described as Peterborough's foremost multi-purpose venue, hosting a diverse mix of live entertainment, community activities, corporate and private events. Oh, and also a metal cup or basket containing oil pitch, a rope steeped in rosin or something flammable. That makes more sense. Eventually, your solitary confinement ends. A crowd of silent, barely human forms enters the chamber. Their hideous deformities are so repellent that you cry out in disgust. They are carrying a selection of very sharp knives. They kill you slowly and take ecstatic pleasure in your agonised writhings. You go completely insane before you die. So, as predicted, it turns out to be not instantly fatal, but almost instantly fatal. I like that you get a section's grace so that you can get your hopes up that it'll be fine, and then it's just not fine. Anyway, we go back to uh, section one, and we will trust the unknown voice and shuffle nearer in the hope that the ropes will be cut. You shuffle awkwardly to the right, encouraged by the mysterious voice. That's right, my friend, that's right. Just a little further now, but please hurry. I dare not be found here. I'm, I'm in mortal fear for my life. But perhaps you are the one we're expecting, and I cannot let these southerners take you. That's it, that's it. I, I have your ropes now. So, and you feel the bonds falling from your wrists. You tear off the blindfold and wrench the ropes from your ankles. You are in a cellar. A little light enters from an open door at the top of a steep flight of narrow stairs. Of your rescuer, there is no sign. There appears to be no other door. Do you want to search the cellar, or will you escape up the staircase? I will search the cellar. The cellar contains little, except for the straw on the floor and several broken boxes. You search for some time. You find no secret doors and no weapons. You are still on your hands and knees, sorting through the straw when you hear the sound of approaching footsteps. Six robed figures march down the stairs. They are amused to find you untied and enjoy chasing you around the cellar. You have no weapon, and in spite of all your struggles, you are doomed to lose this unequal fight. The swordsmen want to capture you alive, it seems, and they bludgeon you unconscious. So, this now takes us to... Waking up in a cavernous vaulted dungeon and going completely insane before we die. So, this time, I am on a bound to invoke the sausage finger bookmark rule. But, uh, yeah... Two deaths in the first 20 minutes. That's uh, a statement of intent. So we will, instead of searching the cellar for a weapon, we will go up the staircase. You emerge into a circular stone room. There are no guards and your sword and pack are lying on the floor. Hooray! You collect them, then peer through the slits that pierce the thick wall. You realise that you are in the ground floor room of one of the towers of Neuburg's East Gate. One of the slits gives you a clear view west along the main street leading to the centre of town. The sun has set behind the buildings, but the whole scene is lit by a beautiful red sky. Everything is very peaceful. Too peaceful. The streets are almost deserted. There are no shouts from the riverside wharves, no priests chanting in the temples. 
no dogs snuffling in the piles of refuse, and no revellers stumbling from the inns. The silence is eerie. You are determined to investigate, but first you must escape from this gatehouse. Yeah, I am determined to investigate. I am all kinds of interested in what's going on. I cannot abide a mystery. I have to go and investigate. So as pitches go, this book is pitching exactly at my level. So there is one door of solid oak banded with iron and locked from the outside. You'll have to try and force it open. Add together your skill and stamina scores. Roll one die eight times and add the results together. If the total is less than your combined skill and stamina, I assume that means we get to break through. Otherwise, well, we remain stuck. Okay. The combined score of my skill and stamina is 32. And average expected outcome from 8d6 is 28. So that's below my combined skill and stamina of 32. So I think I should be okay. So let's find out. So I roll 8d6 and I get. 27 almost bang on the expected outcome hardly surprising when you're rolling eight dice so that's some good news you attack the door with your shoulder and your sword suddenly it opens you stagger through the doorway and slump to the dusty ground to catch your breath in the shadow of the dilapidated tower you realize your captors could return at any moment and decide to try and find shelter in the town picking yourself up you head straight for the Southern Star Tavern, which you remember as a large hospitable establishment in a prominent position on the Market Square. When in doubt, go to the pub until an Englishman wrote this. As you head west to the Market Square, you notice that the few householders you can see are hastily barring their doors and shuttering their windows. When you reach the Southern Star Tavern, it appears to be closed. Pounding on the boards with the pommel of your sword brings the innkeeper to the door. It is easy to rent a room, as there are no other guests. You eat a solitary meal by the light of a candle in the gloom of the inn's shuttered common room. Recover up to four stamina if you've lost any so far. Well, I haven't, but that's nice. You decide to ask the innkeeper what is going on in Neuburg. You have to choose whether you will reveal your past association with Baron Tholder or whether you will keep this information to yourself. I think I will keep that information to myself. If Baron Tholdar has succumbed to the inevitable consequences of generations of inbreeding, and like almost every royal, gone completely tonto, I don't think I should be associating myself with him. So, yeah, keep it to myself. Probably turned into a lizard person. That's what I hear Elizabeth Windsor does when no one's about. Despite your reticence about yourself, the innkeeper turns out to be an affable fellow, and before long he's regaling you with local stories and jokes. He denies having noticed anything wrong in the town, and his beaming, bearded face and the fine ale he serves combine to make you question your first assumptions. Maybe you have been imagining things. How could anything be wrong in a quiet town like this? Feeling rested and reassured, you decide to go to bed. 
the innkeeper shows you to your room and bids you good night. I have a sinking feeling about this. Is he going to knock me unconscious? You survey your chamber with a cautious eye. It looks clean and comfortable. You search beneath the mattress and behind the door. Nothing. You secure the door with its strong iron bolt. Crossing to the window, you slowly unlatch and push open one of the heavy wooden shutters. The night is completely silent. You step out onto a small balcony. It would only be a jump down into the street and you could clamber back easily. What will you do next? Do you want to drop to the street and explore the town? Would you rather go up the hill to Neuberg Keep? Or would you rather go to your room, secure the shutters, throw off your cloak and boots and go to bed? I have a feeling that going to bed might finish with me being bludgeoned unconscious and waking up spread-eagled on a sacrificial altar. I mean, this is kind of cool thing about having died a couple of times is that I know full well there's something very, very wrong in Neuberg. On the other hand, everyone in the town seems to be shutting up as soon as night falls. Maybe I'd be well advised to do the same. Oh, I don't know. Oh, this is doing a really good job of making me feel very paranoid. I'm quite paranoid, just as a starter. I don't usually need much help. This is this is doing a good job of making me feel even more paranoid than usual. Um, but I cannot resist the opportunity to explore. So we're going to explore Neuberg. It is as if you are the only living creature in Neuberg. With your sword in your hand, you are ready to react to the slightest sound. But for now, the silence is absolute. There are no lights in the houses. A pale moon shines occasionally between racing clouds. You are beginning to relax a little when you hear something. Footsteps. Not a man. A beast. A large dog, perhaps. More than one. You pull yourself into the porch of the nearest house. Not a moment too soon. One of the animals has sensed your presence and jumps at you out of the darkness. You have no time to think. Your sword is ready and you fight. It is just as well that you had no time to consider your attackers. They are two horribly, unnatural, misshapen blood lurchers and they attack you one at a time. Blood lurchers are hairless, eyeless beasts with razor-sharp talons on all four paws. They have no teeth. Their gaping red mouths are a mass of writhing tentacles. If they kill you, they will tear your body to ribbons and drain your blood through the suckers on their tentacles. That's nice. Do like specifying what will happen if you lose a fight. It's not often done. Not often necessary, but here, adding to the horror vibe. So, I fight the blood lurchers one at a time. The first blood lurcher has a skill of 10 and a stamina of 7. The second blood lurcher has a skill of 8 and a stamina of 9. So, for the very first time on this adventure, I'm going to roll some dice. I have defeated both Blood Lurchers. Uh, to my surprise, I've only taken two points of damage, reducing my stamina to 20. Especially impressive, considering the first Blood Lurcher had the same skill as me. So, uh, yeah, having very handily defeated the two gruesome monstrosities. Let's find out what we can get up to now. You are overcome with nausea as you survey the bodies of the awful creatures. No wonder the townspeople stay indoors at night. 
least now you have some idea of the savage and unnatural nature of the evil afflicting Neuberg. You may take a memento of your victory if you want to. If you can overcome your revulsion, you may slice a suckered tentacle from one of the beast's mouths and put it in your backpack. I do want to do that. Maybe I can make one massive piece of calamari from it. As you are wiping the blood off your sword, you hear more of the creatures in the distance. You don't want to meet any more blood lurchers tonight, so you return to the inn as quickly as possible. You eat an early breakfast in the common room of the Southern Star. It is a hearty meal brought to you by the innkeeper's wife. You regain up to four points of stamina if you have been wounded, which returns my stamina to 22. After paying the innkeeper, you have five gold pieces remaining in your purse. Record that. You return to your room to collect your sword and backpack, and then step out into the market square. The sky is leaden, and the sudden star's nameboard clatters to and fro in a gusty, drizzling wind. Do you want to go straight to Neuburg Keep? Or would you rather walk about the town? Well, let's walk about the town in search of clues. Clues to what? I have no idea. There is no market today. The square is empty except for a few grim-faced townspeople who scurry across the cobbles. You spot a notice board nailed to a post between the stocks and a horse trough, and you walk over to it and find that among the proclamations about permitted prices for meat and pies... There is a tattered map flapping in the wind. It is a plan of the town. So there is a little map of the town. Very simple place. And basically there's a little splat of roads with names like Shivering Lane, Fish Street and New Wall Street. And obviously a castle up on the hill at the top. So we have a choice of which part of Neuburg do we want to explore. We could go north to the merchant's quarter we could go east to the temple quarter or west towards the wharves and warehouses at the riverside let's go to the temple quarter i always think priests have a ear to the ground in terms of civic affairs by and large they always seem to know what's going on the temple quarter of neuberg is one of the oldest parts of the little town and the most peaceful it contains a number of wall residences as well as the fairly humble shrines and temples to the northern gods that the ancestors of the Neuburgers brought with them when they settled this area by force several centuries ago. The newest and grandest temples dedicated to the currently fashionable gods and goddesses of commerce and farming occupy large parks along the magnificent New Wall Street. From here, narrower avenues climb the lower slopes of Castle Hill and provide access to the smaller and older shrines and temples. You find that walking up these winding avenues is like travelling backwards in time into the history of Neuburg and its once barbaric peoples. But as you climb up past the ever more dilapidated temples of ever more ancient and forgotten cults, you begin to despair of finding anything useful in this part of town. You head for an unusually grand building that looks as though it is the oldest temple of all. But as you approach, you see that it is virtually derelict and apparently deserted. Do you want to press on and visit this last temple, or would you rather turn back to the centre of town? There is a picture of the temple. It's got some particularly massive, crudely 
shaped statues of what I take to be God. Two of them as a male and female that look very much like gods of battle. And another one in a shapeless toga that might be a god of justice, although he does also have a sword. And uh, yeah, it is, I would say, at the lower end of fine. It's not particularly inspiring, but it does convey the idea of an ancient temple. Also, there does appear to be a man standing in the doorway of the temple, which is at odds with what's said in the text. So I am going to go inside and find out if there is a an old man, because or it wouldn't be a fighting fantasy book if we didn't have the opportunity to meet an old man. The ruined temple is set on a rocky outcrop halfway up Castle Hill. The path to it is steep and narrow, and you can almost feel the watching presence of the ominous windowless edifice as you clamber up towards it. The dark stone facing of the temple is pitted and crumbling, but a long line of enormous grim-faced statues of weapon-wielding kings and queens is still standing. The only entrance is a small, dark hole in the middle of this line of guardians. Standing in the doorway, apparently dozing, is a wizened old man. Do you want to approach him? Or would you rather hide in the rocks and watch the temple entrance? I mean, I suppose this could be the very temple where I was previously sacrificed not once but twice by horrible, horrible people. But I can't pass up the opportunity to approach an old man, can I? You walk up to the forbidding entrance. The old man remains motionless, propped on his staff, until you are only a few paces away. Then he opens sparkling blue eyes and snaps at you. I am Hugh, last priest of Oiden in this town. Hurry inside, my friend, for enemies are approaching. He turns sharply and beckons you to follow him into the depths of the gloomy ruin. His voice sounds familiar, but you can't quite recall when and where you have heard it before. I mean, I can. He's the guy who released me from the evil sacrifice people. So I think I will follow him inside. Hugh leads you into a circular hall where he genuflects at the trunk of a spindly white-branched tree that twists upward from the centre of the stone floor. He then ushers you into a cramped side chamber. You sit on a low stool and find Hugh standing beside you, holding a knife to your throat. Be still and listen, he hisses. I rescued you from the dungeons of the East Gate because I suspect you may be the warrior that Oiden has foretold will arrive to challenge the evil in this town. If you are the prophesied hero, you will have with you a valuable treasure that links you to Neuburg. You must donate the treasure to this temple in order to obtain Oiden's assistance. If you are indeed the chosen one, give me the item now. Neuberg's peril increases hourly. Concealed in your belt, you have a jewel-encrusted gold ring given to you many years ago by Baron Thaldur. It is your most valued possession. Hugh turns away. I mean, he's still one step below some of the uh, charity muggers I've come across in uh, Northampton Town Centre. So I think I will offer him Baron Thalder's ring. I feel like we have to trust someone at some point. If he was going to do a bad stab, he had the perfect opportunity when he had a knife at my throat. 
The old priest cannot disguise his joy as he beholds the gem-encrusted gold ring resting on the palm of your hand. He snatches it from you and exults. Just as Oiden foretold, Neuberg has found its champion at last. My friend, I can help you prepare for the trials you must endure. But first, I suggest you fortify yourself with a square meal. Follow me. Surprisingly, the temple is stocked with provisions. You eat well in a cavernous kitchen. You can restore up to four points of stamina, and you may put in your backpack enough food for another three meals. That's what I'm talking about. Happy to have my beloved provisions back, so we can look forward to finding out what I consider to be a sensible temple fare at some point in the not-too-distant future. I am older than I look, my young friend, although you may not think it possible, he tells you. I helped to build this temple, and I know why it was built here, and which evil forces it was intended to contain. Many legends tell of the clash of armies, the slaughter, and the sacrifice that took place when the ancestors of these townsfolk drove the southern hordes out. The stories do not dwell on the unseen side of that conflict, the struggle between the priests of Oiden and Zakaz. Zakaz. Zakaz? Zakaz. Zakaz. The accursed archmage of the despicable gods of Zagula. Zakaz was not destroyed, but his earthly form was sundered, and his spirit sealed deep beneath the earth. This temple was constructed over one of the entrances to those subterranean chambers. Neuberg Keep was built to guard the other. The seals beneath this building are still intact. But I began to worry when Baron Tholder announced his intention to visit the infernal city of Zagula. When he returned with a retinue of southern soldiers, I was displeased, and when it became clear that leading the soldiers was a mysterious wizard whom none in Neuberg has yet seen, my fears were confirmed. Zakaz is stirring. He may already have material form. I cannot guess what he will be like or what he will do after so many centuries in limbo. Completely called it. Baron Tholder, inbred to within an inch of his life forced to wear a prosthetic chin, has gone mad and taken up with the despicable gods of Zagula. Um, they have a lovely, weird fiction, Clark Ashton Smith sort of vibe to them. So, uh, well, the mission is becoming more and more clear. The old priest of Oiden continues his explanation. If Zakaz is resurrected and restored to his ancient powers... Neuberg and all its peoples will be helpless before his vengeful sorcery. I shudder to imagine the terror and despair he will inflict. However, he can be defeated and imprisoned again, especially while he is still weak. His physical form can be destroyed by the sword of a mighty warrior such as you, and he and his minions can be weakened by the talisman of Loth. Unfortunately... The talisman is missing. A week ago, I sent Cernic, my fellow priest, to explore the keep. He has not returned and I cannot contact him, although I think he is still alive. You must go to the keep and try and find a talisman of Loth before you descend into the lower caverns. 
do not enter the castle by the main gate. It is heavily guarded. There is a little known side entrance that you will find if you turn to the right before you reach the main gate. I can give you no more information, but if you wish to undertake the ordeal, Oiden may yet bestow gifts upon you. Do you want to try the ordeal? If you would rather get on with your quest, uh, that's an option too. Well, much though I'm loath to give this incredibly chatty priest more opportunities to bend my ear, I will try the ordeal. Who doesn't love a nice ordeal? I've read some medieval history. I know ordeals were absolutely fine. You are in the large circular chamber looking up at the strange tree. It is completely leafless, but you are sure it is alive. Its sinewy white limbs have a ghostly luminosity. Climb, Hugh tells you. See, I was all prepared to be sticking my hand in boiling water or be chucked in a river or what have you, but no, no, it turns out just got to climb a tree. You cannot see the top of the tree. It seems to disappear into shadows near the domed ceiling. You clamber up the branches until you can no longer see the room below. But you are still nowhere near the top. A strong, bitter wind clutches at you. You cling on as white mists swirl all around. Higher, your body feels fatigue and increasing pain. Inhuman voices clamour in your head. Grimly, you continue to climb with all your senses assaulted. It feels as though your mind and body are being torn apart. You lose consciousness. Do you know, I've been on night outs like that. Not for a number of years, what with being very middle-aged. But I've definitely been on nights out that ended up with me unconscious at the top of a tree. So we need to add together the willpower and the stamina. That gets us... 22 and then we roll dice we roll one die eight times again to try and get less than the old willpower and stamina so this time the odds are against us because it's still an expected outcome of around 28 so i was all set and then i rolled a pair of double sixes for the last two throws of the die uh, giving me a whopping total of 31, well above the expected outcome. That means I have failed. You wake to find yourself on the stone floor, curled around the trunk of the tree. Every muscle aches and your head is spinning. The ordeal has cost you one point of stamina and one point of willpower. Only the strongest and most determined can withstand a meeting with Oiden, Hugh intones. You may climb the tree again or you may leave. Do you want to experience the ordeal again? Uh, apparently we can do this as many times as we like. I mean, I do need to be pretty lucky. I'm going to give it one more go just because I love passing out in trees so much. Wow, 36. So, uh, I guess Oiden really, really doesn't want to give me the time of day. That was an outrageous roll. I mean, it's not that much, actually. Anyway, yep, time to leave. The old priest leads you to the door of the temple and bids you farewell. There is little point in delaying your perilous quest. Somewhere in Neuburg is a broken fragment of a once potent weapon, and I would 
not be at all surprised if it were buried among the wares of some curio dealer. A merchant's quarter is nothing but a den of thieves. Avoid the riverside. It is an unsavoury place. Return to the centre of town and go to face the dangers of the keep. Oiden's blessings go with you. I mean, I'd be more inclined to believe in Oiden's blessing if he hadn't thrown me out of a tree twice. So, do we dare visit the merchant's quarter? I think we dare. No, no, we don't. No, we don't. I think we will take the priest's advice and go straight to Neuberg Keep. The road winds up Castle Hill towards the brooding bulk of Neuberg Keep. The few townspeople you meet shake their heads and avert their eyes. They obviously believe you are either recklessly brave or completely senseless. It's probably a bit of both. The path becomes steeper, the houses are fewer and a little more than stone-fronted caves, and the black towers of the keep's curtain wall loom above you. The path you are on appears to lead directly to the castle's main gate. There is a smaller overgrown path that leads off to the right. Do you want to stay on the main path or take the right-hand trail? Well, we'll be taking the right-hand trail, thank you very much. Hacking at brambles with your sword, you follow the path around the hillside in the shadow of the battlements. The path veers to the left and disappears into a clump of bushes at the base of the wall. You push aside the prickly branches and discover a small door, which you have some difficulty in opening as there's just as much undergrowth on the other side. You cut your way down a flight of stone steps and find yourself in an untended kitchen garden. The vegetable patches, herb beds and fruit trees are wildly out of control and it is impossible to see across the garden. You can make out that the garden is square, is surrounded by walls and has the remains of a gravel path around its edge. You are at the midpoint of one side. Do you want to go right or left? So, first left-right option. We will, of course, take a left. You reach a corner of the overgrown garden. Ahead of you, the path continues to follow the enclosing wall. To your left, there is a squat tower. Its upper story is part of the castle's outer battlements, and it is inaccessible from the garden but a large, jagged hole provides an entrance to the lower section. To your right, a narrow path leads directly to the centre of the garden, and through the dense foliage you can make out a statue in the clearing. So we need to get in to the castle proper, so I suppose entering the tower is as good a start as any. That's what we will do. The inside of the tower is gloomy. The air is damp and fetid. When your eyesight is accustomed to the darkness, you can see that the floor slopes steeply down to a muddy pool. The walls and floor are slick with moisture. Do you want to slide down to the edge of the pool, or would you rather leave the tower? Muddy pools, I think, have giant frogs in them. Giant murder frogs. So we will leave that and cut our way to the central clearing and see if there's any more interesting things to be discerned about this statue. Hacking at undergrowth and overhanging branches, you force your way to the centre of the garden. In a clearing stands a metal statue, in the form of an elven warrior maid. Her uplifted, sword-wielding right hand appears to be hinged at the shoulder, and in the crook of her left arm, instead of a shield, 
she is carrying a narrow-necked urn. At her feet is an empty stone basin. You also see that beyond this statue, the overgrown path continues to the far corner of the garden, but the path is blocked by dense undergrowth and a strangely shaped tree. So we have a picture of the statue, which is sort of viewed from above, which is a bit mad. Um, I guess maybe it's very short. Again, I would call it at the lower end of five. There's a strangely shaped tree indeed in the background, and that I think is actually in some ways more evocative than the elf maiden herself. But what are we going to do? We can try and move the statue's right arm, we can investigate the path beyond the statue, or we can return to the perimeter path. Let's try and move the statue's right arm. Maybe she's one of those uh, tiresome water features. The metal joint screeches as you tug the statue's arm, and then you hear mechanical clicks and whirs from within the metal elf maiden. Her mouth opens and a squeaky voice recites a rhyme in an incomprehensible language, which I choose to believe is Welsh. The urn swivels until the neck is downwards, and then a trickle of green liquid flows from it into the stone basin. The stream of liquid ceases when the basin is almost full, and the statue closes its mouth and raises its arm. The mechanism has stopped working. You lower your face to the basin. The green liquid has no odour. It is thick and opaque, but very fresh-looking colour. Do you want to put your lips to the liquid and drink? Do you have a gold piece that you'd like to throw in the basin? Do you want to put your hand in the liquid, or would you rather leave the statue? And either continue along the path or return to the perimeter path. I will take the least risky seeming of the interaction options and chuck her a gold piece. The coin plops into the green liquid and disappears beneath the surface. Nothing happens. Feeling rather foolish, you make a wish. Still, nothing happens. If you want to put your hand into the liquid to try and retrieve your gold piece, you can. Or you can try drinking some or going away. I mean, this has every feeling of a trap, doesn't it? But what kind of maniac puts a booby-trapped water feature in a kitchen garden? I'll try and retrieve the gold piece. You dip one tentative finger into the green liquid. It's cold, but quite refreshing. Nothing unpleasant occurs. You submerge your whole hand. You can feel nothing at all on the bottom of the basin, so you pull your hand out again. It's covered with a green film. You wipe it against your jerkin, and you're surprised to find that the green colour will not wipe off. Within minutes, your hand begins to itch, and you are appalled to find that tiny plants appear to be sprouting underneath your fingernails and between your fingers. You have immersed your hand in concentrated magical fertiliser, and it is now a haven for tiny airborne organisms. That's uh, exactly the kind of thing that a lunatic posho would put in their kitchen garden, a giant novelty fertiliser dispenser. I apologise for even momentarily doubting the author of this book. He does have an excellent handle on the kind of lunatic things posh people enjoy doing. You must reduce your skill by one permanently because of the constant irritation, but if you survive this adventure you will find that you really do have green fingers. Anything you plant will grow well. That's a nice little touch, isn't it? You may investigate the overgrown path or return to the edge of the garden and follow the perimeter path. Well, let's 
reduce the skill to nine and follow the perimeter path. You continue to skirt the overgrown garden. Halfway along this side, there are steps leading up to a small door set into the high wall that surrounds the garden. The steps are covered with a tangle of thorny branches, and the door is barred and secured with an enormous padlock. You decide to continue to the corner of the garden. There is no tower at this corner. You can see that the path continues to follow the wall alongside the garden, at least as far as the next corner, where there is a tower. Halfway between you and this next tower, a wide staircase ascends from the garden. You can either walk as far as the staircase and use it to leave the garden, or you can continue past the staircase and take a look at the tower. Let's have a look at the second tower. I like a tower. In Northampton, we have a huge former lift testing tower uh, that is quite the impressive thing. You have reached another tower in a corner of the garden. To your left, the path continues along the surrounding wall and passes a wide staircase that ascends from the garden. The wall of the square tower in front of you is windowless, but there is a small wooden door at the base. The door is slightly ajar, and there is darkness beyond. Do you want to enter the tower, or would you rather walk to the staircase and leave the garden? I would like to enter the tower, please. You step into the tower's dark interior and the door slams shut behind you. You spin round, drawing your sword, and with a gurgling roar, a ferocious creature attacks you. There is no source of light in this room, and you have no idea what you are fighting. Luckily, it keeps up a constant throaty growl, which helps you to locate it. Its weapon seems to be a heavy, blunt object, and it is hindered by the darkness almost as much as you. So, we have an unknown assailant. It has a skill of five and a stamina of eight. Shouldn't be a problem, even with my reduced skill. I'm going to roll some dice and hopefully stab up this unknown stranger. No issue at all with the unknown assailant. I have defeated it without taking a single point of damage. After defeating it, you pull open the door to throw some light on the dead body. It is a very ugly ogre, dressed in rags and wearing a huge white bonnet or turban on its relatively small head. There's nothing else in the room except for a flight of stone stairs leading up to a small door. Do you want to try on the oversized headgear? Do you want to inspect the headgear or climb the stairs? Let's have a gander at this here titfer. The unusual hat is made of loosely wound strips of white cloth. It's surprisingly heavy, and turning it over you find a shining glutinous mass quivering inside. Two dark lumps embedded in the transparent gel seem to stare at you like eyes. You instinctively want to hurl it to the floor in disgust, but before you can do so you are taken with the idea of trying on the hat. You are not sure where this idea comes from, but increasingly it appeals to you as the best course of action. Oh my word, it's a brain slug. I love a brain slug. Although, I was going to do a brain slug in my adventure game book later, and I'm now going to have to get rid of the brain slug, because there's no way I'm going to be able to do it as coolly as a brain slug hiding in an oversized bonnet just waiting for people to try it on. That is genius. So I need to test my willpower and see if I can resist the brain slug. 
Yep. Success. My willpower is now nine. My desire to be rid of the thing overcomes the idea of wearing it, and I drop it back and climb the stairs. The door at the top of the stairs is apparently bolted or barred on the other side. It is also very battered and splintered. You conclude that the ogre you have just dealt with has made a sustained attempt to break through it with his club. You can think of only three options. Shoulder charging it, inspecting it, or yelling, I've just killed the ogre, let me in. One of those we will take the last one. From the other side of the door you hear the sounds of heavy objects being laboriously shifted and then a gruff voice calls, Come in, slowly, and with your weapons sheathed. You push open the door to reveal a large, airy room full of tidy shelves of plant pots, chests full of garden tools, and herbs drying in bundles in the rafters. There are windows in the walls to your right and left, and another door in the wall opposite you. In the middle of the room stands a frail old dwarf, with bright green hands and forearms. There is a rune-encrusted battle-axe stuck through his belt, and you suspect he can use it effectively despite his great age. There is a picture of the dwarf in his potting shed slash tower eerie. I'm actually going to say I like this one a bit better. There's a slightly kind of grotesque caricature quality to it. There's very heavy use of stippling. And the dwarf has an appealingly lined and craggy face. I'm going to say I actually quite like this one. The dwarf addresses you again. If you have indeed slain the ogre that has kept me from my garden these past ten weeks, soldier, then you have earned my gratitude. I will allow you passage through my storeroom, whether you be friend to Baron Thaldor or foe. He stands aside to let you pass. Will you thank him and leave through the door in the far wall, or will you tell him about your quest? I will tell him about my quest. Having taken a deep breath and a precautionary hold on the pommel of your sword, you tell the dwarf gardener about your old friendship with the Margrave of Neuburg Keep and your mission to cleanse the town of evil. The old dwarf ponders for several minutes and finally sighs. <sighs> Very well. I believe you. I can't think why anyone should tell such a story unless it were true. And anyway, even if you are a villain and an impostor, I don't see how you can make things worse than they already are. I'll help you, if I can. Sit yourself down, eat if you have food. I have none myself. It has been a long time since you last had a chance to relax. I mean, it was literally this morning. But you have found a temporary haven and an ally. Recover one luck point. I have lost no luck. If you have no provisions in your pack, you rest for a few minutes and then ask the dwarf for information. If you have some food, you can offer some to the dwarf, it would appear. If your pack contains both food and a piece of blood lurcher tentacle, then another thing happens, and that's the thing we are going to enjoy. You place your backpack on a bench and begin to unbuckle it. Inches from your nose, the dwarf's battle axe whistles through the air and slices your pack clean in two. Enraged, you draw your sword. But the dwarf, still clutching the rune-covered haft of his weapon, is plainly almost as surprised as you are. Carefully, you separate the halves of your pack and discover the still, twitching remains of the monstrosity that has been growing inside your backpack. The blood lurcher tentacle, 
has managed to absorb two portions of your rations and has transmuted into a bloated, blood-sucking mass with hundreds of finger-sized feelers. Thanks to the dwarf's prescient axe, the thing is dying. If you had a globe of green glass in your pack, you find that it has been shattered into tiny shards, but in breaking it has left behind a large emerald. Nothing else is damaged, and the dwarf provides you with a new backpack. Do you have any food left? I've got one provisions left. Who'd have thought that a tentacle beast could grow so fat on tonics, tea cakes and mini cheddars? If you want to eat a meal and recover some stamina, you can now do so. You can offer food to the dwarf. He will certainly accept it if you do. If you decide that you cannot afford to waste your provisions by handing them out to other people, the dwarf will understand your point of view. And if you eat, he will watch glumly until you've finished your meal. Deduct any food you have consumed from your adventure sheet and go onwards. If you give food to the dwarf, you must deduct one portion of provisions for the food he eats, plus another one if you eat two. If you have only one portion in your pack, you can share it with the dwarf, but you will regain only two points of stamina. So well, I've actually only lost two points of stamina, so I will share it with the dwarf. I mean, half a pack of quavers is better than no quavers at all. The dwarf gardener has eaten very little recently, and he relishes his portion of rations as if it were a banquet. I mean, quavers are nice. I thank you again, soldier, he says. That's the second service you've done me, and I don't know how I can repay you. Ask away, though. Some of these herbs have strange properties, and I know a little about the goings-on in the keep. I'd let you have my axe, Bokhorbel, but she's getting temperamental these days. She'd have me attacking you if I weren't careful. He seems to find this idea very amusing and chuckles for some time. Ah, dear me, dear me, where was I? I remember. Ask me for something, soldier. When you ask for a preparation to bolster your willpower, information about potential allies in the keep, or the dwarf's opinions about a three-pronged spearhead, if you have it, which I don't. So, potential allies it is. The elderly dwarf thinks hard for a moment. I can't think of much that'll help you on this one, he mutters at last, except for what I've picked up from the kitchen servants at the keep, those that are still there and haven't been kicked out by the southern rabble. They say there's someone hiding from the soldiers in the dungeon. He's lying low down there because it's the last place anyone would think to look for him. Name's... Kerwick or Kernick or something similar. A priest, anyway, so he might be useful to you. You thank the dwarf for this information, but he says he has more to tell you. Oh, more accents? Oh, please. This is why you listen, isn't it? Pushing aside a cobwebbed collection of bean poles, trellises, and bales of straw, the dwarf reveals a grimy fireplace in a corner. He calls you over and shows you that as well as a chimney leading straight upwards, there's also a narrow gap at the side of the grate. You can just make out the first few steps of a staircase leading downwards into the thickness of the tower wall. This'll take you into the cellars, says the dwarf. It's probably the only way you'll get into the keep without someone else knowing about it. But you can go through the other door and try getting across on the battlements if you want to. Want to use a secret passage or go through the door and out onto the battlements? We will go through the secret passage. You strike a flint, like the wick of one of the many oil lanterns in the storeroom, and by the flickering light you cautiously descend the steep and narrow stairs. 
At the bottom, a passage roughly hewn in the solid rock leads away into the darkness. It is cold and dank. Water drips on you as you creep forward. At irregular intervals, shafts pierce the roof of the tunnel, providing a little illumination. The shafts are too long and sheer to climb, and you can see metal gratings across the distant ends. You are fairly sure that the passage is taking you beneath the castle's inner bailey towards the keep. The stairs are out of sight behind you, and the tunnel disappears into darkness ahead of you. There is a wooden door blocking a side tunnel to your right. The door is held shut by two massive wooden wedges that have been hammered between it and the surrounding rock. Do you want to try and remove the wedges and enter the side tunnel, or would you rather press on? I think I will press on, because I feel as though any time you hammer a door with wedges to hold it shut, it probably means something's trying to get through from the other side that you would prefer not to. I mean, for all I know, there could be like a young conservative canvassing for votes on the other side of that door. So yeah, we will press on. The tunnel comes to an end at the door. At first, you can see no way to open it, but after a few experimental pushes and pulls, you realise that the stone slab pivots around a horizontal central bar. You crawl through the lower opening into a long, low cellar, and having established that there is no immediate danger, you push the door back into place. The walls of the cellar are faced with stone slabs, and it is now almost impossible to differentiate the door you have just come through from the other slabs. See, that's a good secret door. The rectangular cellar has a normal door in the centre of the short wall at its other end, and a door in the centre of each of the long walls on your right and left. Although you cannot see these two doors at first, they are obscured by two lines of huge barrels that occupy the length of the cellar. You walk between the rows of barrels, each of which has a tap and a small cup on a string. You decide to taste some of the contents of Baron Thaldor's cellar, but the barrels do all look alike. You have to take potluck. Again, clearly written by an Englishman. Fate of the world at stake, but surely there's time for a pint or two or three to find out which random barrel I try. I roll a six. Hopefully that is some kind of dark mild. You select one of the few barrels that is in an upright position. It has a tap but no drinking cup. So you pour a little of the barrel's contents into the palm of your hand and drink a mouthful of the brown liquid. It tastes bitter and sears the roof of your mouth. You begin to feel rather ill. The liquid is poisonous, but you have consumed so little you lose only two points of stamina. Clearly tequila. I've found a barrel of tequila. Uh, you can now look inside the barrel from which you've just drunk or roll one die to taste the contents of a different barrel. Let's have a look inside the barrel. Must remember to reduce my stamina to 20. Using the thick iron hoops as finger and toe holds, you climb up the side of the great barrel. You grasp the leather handle of the lid and pull mightily. Throwing the lid to one side, you look down into the barrel to find your horrified gaze met by the lifeless stare of dozens of pairs of unblinking eyes. The barrel is full of heads, floating like shriveled balloons in an acrid brown preserving fluid. You lose one point of willpower as the full implications of your recent drink sink in. If you now have less than six points of willpower, something happens. If you have more than six points, then uh, I assume everything's fine. So uh, my willpower now down to eight. There is a picture of the barrel, and this one I will say is just straight up great.
the uh, fluid rendered in pure pitch black, real kind of um, chiaroscuro approach been used. These white faces staring sightlessly up, many with grotesque expressions. It's cracking. You hear a footfall behind one of the cellar's middle doors. Before you can react, the door flies open and four robed swordsmen rush in. You face them, with your weapon at the ready and back away between the rows of barrels. Behind you, another door opens, and you turn to see another four soldiers entering the cellar. You are surrounded. Eight swords converge on you. Do you want to fight or surrender or try and bribe them with either a jewel-encrusted ring, don't have an emerald, don't have, or any gold pieces. Well, I have four whole gold pieces. So, out of these options, I don't foresee fighting working well. I imagine surrendering will lead to me being knocked unconscious and tortured to death for the third time in one adventure. So, I'm going to try and bribe them. The swarthy swordsmen watch with interest as you rest your weapon and proffer your bribe. Their leader takes your offering and insists on searching your backpack for more. He mockingly pretends to be very disappointed that you have nothing else of value to him and then suddenly orders his men to seize you. You cannot reach your weapon in time and soon you are held fast in spite of your struggles. The swordsmen are highly amused at your outraged expostulations. This is looking bad. Sandwiched between two of the burliest of the swordsmen and surrounded by a squad of others, you have no chance to escape as you are frog-marched out of the cellar, up a flight of stairs, through the gloom of the servants' quarters and into the opulent private chambers of the Margrave of Neuburg Keep. Your guards halt at a pair of grand carved doors on which the leader raps loudly. When the doors have been opened, he bows and announces in a barbaric accent, May it please the mangrove, a foreign spy captured within the castle walls. A swordsman shoves you from behind and the entire troop marches in to present you to Baron Tholder. When you are last in Tholder's great hall as his honoured comrade in arms, you marvelled at the austere magnificence of the vast stone-pillared chamber. It seemed to reflect the margrave's grand and rigorously martial personality. Now you are his prisoner and everything seems to have changed. Sumptuous tapestries cover the walls, and the floor is littered with rugs and cushions. Ranks of impassive swordsmen stand on guard, while the captains and Neuburg merchants are waited on and entertained by lithe maidens in gauzy silks. Some of the young women are dark-haired beauties from the south. Others, wearing chains between their ankles and wrists, are from the Neuburg area. Boulder himself is sprawled on a grandiose gilt throne, a goblet in his hand and a faraway look in his eye. Seated next to him on the dais is a small figure in a dark red cloak with a cowl that conceals its face. This figure whispers in Folder's ear as you approach. Looks like we've got us a Grima worm tongue, and the image is quite redolent of Theoden and Grima worm tongue. It's okay, but it doesn't seem to me to really sell the decadence, I suppose, we're being asked to visualise in the description. It's very much focused on just the throne and the figure in a cloak. The throne is quite nice. The figure's fine. It is, again, it is fine. It's got a certain slightly gothic vibe to it. 
a lot of the artwork does sort of remind me of Gary Chalk, but not on his best day. It's fine. Do you wish to remain silent while Baron Folder dispenses summary justice and decides your fate? Or do you want to identify yourself and appeal to the Margrave's memories of your past exploits together? I mean, he's obviously been drugged, but I don't really think that just sitting there and going, yeah, whatever you reckon, mate, I've clearly been brought here by due process of the law and await your doubtless perfectly sane judgments with equanimity. I don't foresee that having... A particularly good outcome so I'm gonna to have to do the Hail Mary of trying to uh, get him to remember our past exploits. The Margrave gestures vaguely and begins to mumble about having you taken away. You interrupt. Thaldor, you shout. Recover your senses, man. You remember me? We fought side by side at Helm Hill. We defeated a horde of barbarians. Not unlike this rabble infesting your keep. Wake up! Think! Outraged murmuring ripples around the hall. A guard knocks you down from behind and you stagger to your feet to see Baron Thulder and the red-robed figure in the midst of a furious yet whispered argument. The Margrave seems to have recovered some of his wits and he obliges his mysterious adviser to accept a compromise. He addresses you in a clear voice. My memory is failing me these days he says. But there may be some truth in your story. Do you have any proof of these strange allegations of yours? If you are who you say you are, I seem to recall giving you a gift or a token. If you have not yet given it away, you have a bejeweled gold ring given to you by Thalder many years ago. Do you want to show it to the Margrave? Uh, I do, but I don't have it. So, that's Wretched old man really sold me down the river by insisting that I give him the one thing that could serve as proof of my story. The mysterious red-robed figure continues to prompt Baron Thulder, who rapidly finds the subject boring. He readily agrees you should be taken down to the dungeons and makes it clear he has no interest in what happens to you after that. Ten guards escort you from the Great Hall and down a series of narrow staircases. At one point, you reach a dark underground gallery. Half of the escort contingent has already started down the next set of spiral stairs. The other half is coming down the stairs behind you. You have a slim chance to escape, although you do not know how far you will get in the darkness. Do you want to sprint along the passage in the dark or continue to follow your captors? Looks like I'm going to be a sprinting. Time to test my luck. <sighs> of my teeth just made it i am lucky first luck test i think of the adventure evading the clutching hands of your guards you flee into the dark tunnel within seconds you are round a corner and in complete blackness you collide with a rock wall stumble over a boulder and collapse to the ground in a daze you recover as the first of your pursuers approaches holding aloft a flaring torch he fails to see you, and as your blade slices into his leg, he howls with pain, drops the torch, and prepares for combat. So the southern swordsman has a skill of six and a stamina of four. And I've got to kill him within two attack rounds, or something will happen. So it shouldn't be a problem, but it's in the lap of the gods, as I'm going to roll some dice. 
I have killed him within a two attack rounds, and I can run off along the tunnel, but without the benefit of the torch which was burned out. You hurtle along the corridor into absolute darkness. A few painful collisions with rock walls persuade you to moderate your speed, and you make your way forward as best you can with your arms outstretched in front of you, and then you take a step, and the floor has gone. You topple into a chasm, and as you fall you know the impact of the landing will kill you. You are wrong. You land on a soft, viscous surface, a bit like thick mud. You just have enough time to offer thanks to your gods before the awful realisation that the ooze is creeping over you, and that your extremities are being eroded by the digestive juices of the subterranean jelly creature on which you have landed. It enjoys its unexpected meal. So, there we go. We have not succeeded in beating Beneath Nightmare Castle. Hardly surprising. Seems quite hard. I had, spoilers, a lovely time with it. But sometimes, when I've had a lovely time on the first playthrough, subsequent playthroughs can be a little bit frustrating. So some books I like more when I replay, some I like less. What will the case be with this one? Well, I'll answer that question in just a few seconds. Tatty bye! Beneath Nightmare Castle is exactly my kind of jam. I love the space where fantasy and horror collide, and that's precisely what this book delivers. Its aesthetic is one of gruesome body horror, but that aesthetic is anchored to a very well-designed and exciting dungeon adventure that feels resolutely old school. It was a very big ask to follow something as experimental and interesting as Creature of Havoc, and I think Beneath Nightmare Castle does an admirable job. In many ways, what I like most about Beneath Nightmare Castle is that it's simultaneously adventurous and also back to basics. So even though there's a lot going on, the book is structured like many a classic adventure story. You arrive at a place, discover all is not well, and then set out to brave the dungeons beneath the castle in order to restore the old order. It's often been observed that the stories of fantasy gaming owe more to westerns than they do to classical fantasy literature, and in Beneath Nightmare Castle you have a classic riff on the gunslinger arriving at town trope, and that's one where the hero and the setting are both blank canvases on which the reader or viewer can project, and the hero learns things at the same rate as the reader, which makes the storytelling much easier. It's simple and it works, and what this book does is then layer on this very dark, cosmic, body horror aesthetic. The things we discover through the course of the adventure are disturbing and they're terrifying, but they're not arbitrary. Everything is related to the dark force that's at work in both the town and the castle. And so the horrors are a direct product of a willed, evil and completely insane design. The ultimate villain of this story is trying to remake the world in his own demented and disgusting image. And that comes across in so many different bits of the adventure, and I really love it. It's a shame that with this strong aesthetic that the art is so inconsistent. 
There's a lot I really liked, but there's a lot that didn't land for me as well. It's on the border between interestingly grotesque and a bit cartoonish. Some things wind up looking like lost illustrations from a very inappropriate noddy book, but an equal number are extremely evocative, and there's often an atmosphere of world weariness in the way humans or humanoids are depicted that feels spot on. I, I don't think he's a bad artist by any stretch, but I don't think he was nailing the brief with every piece. After the intricacies of Creature of Havoc, there's a pleasantly old-school approach to the way the book is designed and laid out. You aren't being asked to decode convoluted puzzles or find five different hidden sections, and neither are you being asked to collect a vast laundry list of magical doohickeys in order to progress to each section. There is a selection of items that will make the final portions of the book much, much easier but none of them feel absolutely essential in and of themselves. If you get them all, you can finish the book without needing much luck on your side and with fairly low stats. It is one of those books where it's very hard, but if you make exactly the right decisions, there's a way through for any character. If you miss one of the items, you might still make it, but the whole thing will feel a lot harder. And I think that's completely the right approach to difficulty. And it was exactly the approach I tried to take with my first game book. I wanted people to be able to get to an ending even if it wasn't the best ending. And Beneath Nightmare Castle has the same feeling. It's not obsessed with cheaters. It isn't trying to make it so that there's only one path which requires you to have done everything right the first time. Even though it's a really dark and twisted scenario, it feels like the author is on your side. He wants you to have fun. And it's not like the book isn't hard, even despite these concessions. There's some leeway in how you beat it, but there's also a lot, and I mean a lot, of ways to die. One place I looked suggested there's around 50 instant death sections in a 400 section book. That seems like a lot, but at the same time, I don't see instant death as a problem. Especially on later playthroughs, when I've got the basic shape of things, I take a perverse pleasure in seeing my character get horribly murdered, because by that point, I'm usually playing with at least four plump fingers as bookmarks, so I know that I'm just going to roll back any deaths and just treat them as a form of entertainment. And in this case, they are very entertaining indeed. Peter Darville Evans takes a perverse delight in explaining the gory and disgusting details of every single sudden end, and it robs those deaths of a lot of their sting because it's such gruesome fun. This is obviously something of an acquired taste. Not everyone is as morbid as I am, but I found the plethora of murder and insanity very enjoyable indeed. In terms of the more adventurous elements, you obviously have the introduction of a willpower mechanic, which is clearly actually a sanity mechanic that doesn't want to impinge on Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu, the role-playing game set in the world of H.P. Lovecraft's Cthulhu Mythos, which has declining sanity mechanics as its single greatest contribution to gaming. And I have to say, it's very neatly implemented here as well. House of Hell had the fear mechanic, which was a gradually increasing store of panic, but I think Willpower has some little refinements that just make it feel that bit more involved. Obviously, the fact that it functions like luck with you having to test your willpower 
That presents a problem in terms of reduplicating mechanics, but the author manages to make them feel quite different in terms of how they play out in the game. What I really like is that once your willpower goes below six, you are on the verge of insanity, and your next failed test will be the end. However, there is still a sense of uncertainty and jeopardy preserved because you could still pass at least one, maybe two tests, before your willpowers drop to the point where final irrevocable lunacy starts to look like a raging certainty. And that possibility makes the mechanic feel more impactful, I think, than maybe the running total of fear points in House of Hell. Although I will say that approach was much more concise in terms of section and word count. The willpower system does mean that every willpower test eats additional sections of the book. So there's at least one instant kill section that needs to be added for every willpower test after the first, as well as an additional section to signpost you between different outcomes for whether your willpower is six or less or seven or higher. That's a lot flabbier than the two different outcomes you get from a luck test, for example. This isn't a problem in a book with a very tight setting, but it could be more of an issue if you wanted to tell a more epic story and you were still going to try and keep it to 400 sections. You'd then have to think about reducing the number of willpower tests, which would have the knock-on effect of making willpower seem like less of an important part of the game. Now, in general, I'd rather read a shorter but more densely designed game book than something epic and flabby. That's just my personal taste. Caverns of the Snow Witch leaps to mind as an example of how a long, standard fighting fantasy book can feel a bit of a struggle if the structure is epic but largely linear. One thing that's interesting about this book is that I think Beneath Nightmare Castle shows us that the core audience of fighting fantasy, the people who'd been there from the start, was getting older and were ready for something a bit more intense. There's a real nastiness to this book, which I would doubtless have loved if I'd read it at the time. I was always a ghoulish child. I read Stephen King's It before I was ten, and although it scared the hell out of me, it also fascinated me. This would have been right up my street, even as like a seven-year-old, I think. Looking at it through the jaded eyes of a 40-something with 35 years of exposure to horror media behind me, I still think it lands really well. The atmosphere strongly reminds me of the work of Clark Ashton Smith, who was a contemporary of H.P. Lovecraft and the Conan creator Robert E. Howard, uh, considered one of the big weird tales writers. And his work often bridges the gap between cosmic horror and fantasy, but in a way that is tinged with an ironic humour. And there's a very similar aesthetic at work here. It's hard to pick a favourite, but there's a great deal of gruesome fun to be had in opening a box at the docks, only to find it full of writhing body parts, or the barrel full of pickled heads that occurs early in the castle. Uh, there's a ghastly blob monster disguised as a chair that has echoes of the Autons from classic Doctor Who. The final form of the demonic creature behind all of these hideous creations, which are haunting the castle, is suitably repellent and a really nice bit of art as well. A horrible amorphous melange of disparate body parts that flow together in a manner reminiscent of Brian Yuzner's classic body horror film Society. I think the one 
I like best is still the Blood Beast from right at the start. These horrible, leechy, tentacly dog monsters. I absolutely adore the detail of the severed tentacle having turned into something new and hideous by gorging itself on my provisions in my backpack while I'm unaware. The scene with the dwarf cutting it to pieces is a brilliant set piece. There's also another amorphous blob monster that starts off at skill 3 but rapidly gets stronger as it manifests more and more misshapen limbs to try and kill you. And let's not forget we get treated to both an old man and a dwarf, ensuring that the fighting fantasy cliches are still being given due prominence. Got to have an old man and it's really nice if you also have a dwarf. Probably of all the game books I've played recently, this is the one that feels most like something I would like to have written myself. I think the author and I have very similar ideas about what makes a good game book and how role-playing narratives should work. I admire the sense that everything which happens in this book does so for a reason. Even though there's plenty of things that are simply haphazard encounters, there's a way of tying them all back into the awful things going on in the castle and the reawakening of an ancient evil. And I think when you're trying to write an interactive piece like this, it helps if you can do that and relate everything you put into the game world to something that happens in the world. There has to be a reason. It helps if there's a reason, even if that reason is very silly. It's like when you put an orc raiding party in your wilderness game. Classic wilderness encounter. D6 orcs straight out of the bestiary. But if you, the author or the games master, know why they're raiding that particular area, even if the players don't know, that adds depth to your world. Perhaps a charismatic orc shaman has convinced his tribe that they're immune to weapons, like uh, John Nichols Tom, the 19th century Englishman who claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus right up until the point they shot him. It's the sense of a world progressing on the laws of cause and effect that is so beguiling in a good interactive story. In Beneath Nightmare Castle, it comes over most strongly for me in the overgrown garden. That's a garden that's been neglected for some time because the Baron with the silly name is enthralled to the wizard who's trying to bring back the nameless evil. Courgettes and sage plants are not really a priority at this point. Also, the gardener is trapped in a tower by an insane ogre wearing a brain slug bonnet. So things have become rather wild, but you can still find the novelty elf statue that dispenses magical fertilizer in the middle of the garden. That's a reminder of the castle as it was. It's a piece of the old castle fallen into disrepair and newly inhabited by monsters and I think that's a great example of tying something into the overall theme and creating an unusual location but one which has a reason for existing. Now that's quite enough wittering about this book. I think it's great. You should definitely play it. I think my copy cost about £12 and I've found it well worth the asking price. There's plenty of copies in circulation as far as I can see. They sometimes go for quite a lot on eBay, but if you're willing to wait for a little bit, you can you can do it for much less than the, the standard asking price. I'm going to be back hopefully very soon indeed with another bonus episode. This will be another book by noted first draft proponent J.H. Brennan, which I hope you will enjoy. His book's aren't often good by any traditional measure, but there's a demented energy to them 
which makes for an entertaining time despite that. Don't forget, if there's something you'd like me to cover or any feedback you'd like to give me, I can be reached by email at hjdoomretrofun, or one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening. Take care, and I'll see you soon.